Man, what a morning we are having so far. Amen? Just beautiful. So glad those guys chose to celebrate and, and share that decision with all of us, aren't you? It takes a real courage to do that. I'm so glad they chose to do that. We're all blessed by that, without a doubt. Well, as Kate said, we are continuing our sermon series, our all-request summer sermon series. And today we are tackling the subject of women in the Bible and church leadership. Now, this is a subject near and dear to our hearts here at Outlook, uh, and I'm glad that someone asked that we preach and teach about it. There are Christians who believe that only men are to be leaders in ministry and in the church because they have concluded that that is what the scriptures describe and direct. We here at Outlook do not share that belief and have not reached that conclusion, and so I'm going to make an attempt this morning to explain why and how that is true. Now, a word of warning, these next few minutes are going to be kind of packed, okay? It's got to like unleash the fire hose, start drinking, right? I mean, this is just what it's going to feel like, because I only have a few minutes with us together, and uh, like Robin Priest said last week, didn't she do a great job in that sermon, if you were here last Sunday? <laughs> Called her out of retirement to uh, share God's Word with us, so good, but she did say at the beginning of the sermon, these are not simple subjects sometimes that you've asked about, and that's as it should be for all requests summer, but it does mean in this case especially, I want to make the most of the few minutes that we have together. So, is everyone ready to buckle up? Okay, that inspires so much confidence in me that, you know, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, we're gonna, we're gonna cover a lot of ground today, but that's okay because this is an important subject, and it's one that we can be really joyful about how this, what the, the story the scriptures tell to us about the empowerment of every, both, of both genders when it comes to ministry and leadership. We believe the Bible makes it clear that God's empowering call to ministry is given to all disciples, men and women. So, let's begin at the beginning as we begin to look at the Scriptures. Both man and woman were created in God's divine image, and both were charged by God to have dominion or rule over the earth. That idea of authority or rule is an important one as we move through. So let's just remember at the beginning, that was absolutely granted to men and women. So God created mankind, Genesis 1, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. Now, in the next chapter, in Genesis 2, we zoom in on the specifics of the creation of woman. And we hear God draw this conclusion. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, here's where we reach our first interesting thing to kind of unpack uh, that we could potentially get snagged on. The words here for a helper suitable in the original language of Hebrew are, are azer neged. And it literally means a help in front of. Now, to our English-speaking ears, if you're an English speaker, I think we are today, help or helper can sound to us like a subordinate or an assistant. Right? Kind of the B team, less than, or something like that. We might somehow think, is that what's implied by this idea of a helper? But we realize that we're wrong when we see that repeatedly in the scriptures, this same word for help and helper is used to describe God 
himself as his people's rescuer, strength or might, an ever-present help in time of need. So, certainly, let's just get that out of the way, there's nothing subordinate to be implied by this word, helper. Quite the opposite. God saw Adam's need and supplied what he lacked when he made woman. Now, staying here in Genesis for a minute, it was only the result of the fall, what we read next in this story of the first humans, the fall is what we call when they decided to do things their own way, ignore God's instructions. They sinned, they separated themselves from God, we call that the fall. It's only as a result of the fall that this dynamic was damaged and departed from God's original design, this dynamic of male and female relationship. As God pronounces the hardness of life now in a world full of sinful dysfunction, thanks to the fall, God says to Eve about Adam, he will rule over you. God's not pronouncing this is how it should be. God is warning her this is how it will be now. This is how it will be until we follow God's lead because he begins to set about his plan for redemption as he reverses this curse and begins to work at setting things right. And the rest of the Bible is the story of God's working to redeem and rescue from the fall and all of its effects the humanity that he loves so much. First through the law and the prophets, which then set the stage for Christ and his Holy Spirit. So we, living where we do in redemption history, here uh, knowing who Jesus is, that we, we live on a planet visited by God himself in Jesus Christ, we live in the redemption of the fall. God is restoring that which was not true thanks to the fall, but was true before the fall. So in most of, that's the creation and the fall. Now let's turn, again, I told you, we're going to be going a little bit fast here because there's a lot of good stuff to cover. In most of the rest of the Old Testament, we look at the nation of Israel, God's people, who, with whom he establishes a relationship and begins to work his redemption plan. And as we look at the nation of Israel, women in leadership are described with God's blessing and no hint that their gender should disqualify them. We think of Miriam, for instance, sent by God to lead Israel, or Deborah. She's one of the judges that, quote, the Lord raised up who, quote, saved Israel from the hand of their enemies. When the book of the law was found, the priest consulted the prophet Huldah and submitted to her spiritual leadership. None of this with any irony or regret or caveat whatsoever. Not one Old Testament text says that God permitted these women to hold such political or religious authority only because of some special circumstance, nor do they describe these exceptions as, as exceptions to a scriptural Principle. In other words, there clearly was no, some, no somehow universal law that said that, that, no, 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 women should not do this, but there are a couple cases where God allowed it. No, God is absolutely raising up women for positions of spiritual leadership. Scripture does not criticize them on the grounds that their having authority over men is somehow inappropriate uh, for a woman. Instead, the Old Testament presents women in religious and political leadership as normal, albeit less than common, thanks to the fall. Quite the opposite, this is quite the opposite of excluding women from leadership. God appointed women to both secular and sacred leadership. That's a quick, quick survey of this subject when it comes to the nation of Israel and the Old Testament. 
Now let's look at the Gospels. Now we've moved into the New Testament. These first four books of the New Testament tell the story of Jesus, his teaching, his life and ministry. As we move into these Gospels, we begin with the Spirit-inspired songs of Elizabeth and Mary. We know throughout these four stories of Jesus' life that Jesus' fair and empowering treatment of women defied judicial, social, and religious customs of his day. He protected women from unfair laws and judgments in a society that regarded women, that's sad to say, but true, a society that regarded women as less intelligent or less moral than men. Jesus respected women's intelligence and their spiritual capacity. He knew better. This is evident in the great spiritual truth that he taught to women, such as the Samaritan woman in John 4, or Martha in John 11, or Mary sitting at his feet and listening in Luke 10, taking the very posture of a disciple with a rabbi. It can be easy for you and me today to maybe miss how odd and disruptive and actually revolutionary this inclusion of women was at the time. Just how much this went against what was the norm or what was expected or what was the trend. And the fact that we can read these accounts, that they were written and absolutely embedded in the story of Jesus, not things that might have happened, but now we're going to downplay them, but absolutely set within undeniably the story of Jesus. These accounts would not have been written if, they, uh, if an overthrow of the former restrictive and incorrect and unjust ways of considering and treating women was not part of Jesus' kingdom practice and message. So we see this throughout Jesus and the Gospels. But then there is the very birth of the church in the book of Acts. And it was clear that women in the church would find whole new doors open to them. That the church of Jesus Christ was going to be a revolutionary, paradigm-shifting organization, so to speak. A movement unlike anything else that anyone had seen, when it, especially when it comes to this subject here. How does Peter explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Check out what he says. This is what was spoken, he says, by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, and now just to be clear, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy, meaning to declare the truth of God. At the conclusion of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul greets by name ten people that he identifies as colleagues in Christian ministry. Seven of the ten are women. He uses the same word for work or labor to describe their ministry that he uses to describe his own. In other words, he sees him, his ministry and the ministry of women as absolutely together in the same God-ordained category. No separation. No A-team, no B-team, none of that stuff. Phoebe, a woman, delivered this letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans has, is considered by scholars to be one of the most powerful pieces of writing in Western civilization. And she was Paul's emissary, delivering the letter and likely making it her first expositor, her first person, the first person to read that letter to an assembled group. Paul, in that same chapter 16 of Romans, describes Junia, 
as esteemed by or, an outs- or outstanding among the apostles. And then he mentions someone named Priscilla and calls her a co-worker. In fact, speaking of Priscilla, back in the book of Acts, in Acts 18, we meet a guy named Apollos. He's a new Jewish Christian, and he's described as a learned man. He begins to share the gospel publicly, but it became clear that he needed some further instruction. And who gave him that instruction? In verse 26 of Acts 18, we read, When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Aquila is Priscilla's husband, when they heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So a learned man came and hung out with this husband and wife who both, and it's clear, shared with him what he needed to know. No, clearly no problem with a woman teaching a man God's word. I highlight that because a lot of people do have a problem with that. But I don't see that problem here in the scriptures. Defying custom, even Priscilla's name is nearly always written before her husband's when this couple is mentioned in the scriptures, emphasizing she was far from a background player in the story of the church. Again, something that we might be used to, but would have been highly unique back at the time of these writings. Paul's openly naming such a high proportion of women leaders is unparalleled in the history of Greek literature. And it suggests not a closeness to female leadership, but an openness to it, exceptional for the time and the culture. These are just a couple of examples. Here's one, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul really drops the mic. Check this out. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, what's the context here? Why why are these categories important? What what is Paul saying here? Check this out. At this time, Jewish men would pray a daily prayer, thanking God that they were not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman, since these groups lacked the privilege of studying Scripture. Paul takes those same three categories and brings them right back here and says, you've got to leave all that garbage behind. He says here and elsewhere that life as Jesus' people transcends such categories. This new life, this new wine and this new wineskin, this does not fit what God is now doing in these days. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for instance. There's a moment in uh, in which Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. We do not act separately or independently of each other. This would have been not normal at the time, far from it. To illustrate this, we can read uh, uh, earlier in the same letter, Paul's most detailed treatment of marriage. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he specifically, uh, he, he specifically and exactly lays out the same conditions, the same opportunities, rights, and obligations for the woman as for the man in 12 distinct issues about marriage, repeatedly using symmetrical wording. In other words, he is making it clear that what society wanted to make very uneven ground with one, the male, powering up over their wives, that this was, this was what was taught and practiced in society, and he is in all of his language, constantly bringing these back to level ground. Why? Because he knows. 
in Genesis 1 that God made them, male and female, both in his image. He knows that Jesus, the Messiah, has come to restore life before the fall, taking us back to the garden. He applies this in super practical ways. In verse 4, he even states, The husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. And then he says the same about uh, the, the wife and the husband. Now, one commentator I read called this a paradigm-shattering vision. The idea that the word authority would be given to the wife and that the husband should submit equally to the wife just as the wife submits to the husband, that actually mutual submission is the Christian paradigm, We're, we might be used to hearing that. Maybe you've been taught that, uh, and, and I hope you have. But no one would have been used to it at the time. It was an absolutely new Christian ethic. Now, none of this negates, for instance, sometimes people wonder about this, what Paul says to husbands, of being the head or the source of good things in their marriages in Ephesians chapter 5. But as we've discussed many times, if we make headship simply about authority, we are not only misreading the text, but missing the concept's real power. Check this out. If you or I are the head of some group or team or family, the immature point of view would say, hey, look at the authority I have. Do what I say, right? But the mature and healthy point of view would say, hmm, look at the responsibility I have. How can I serve? We know that's the Jesus way. And we know that's how we are to love each other and certainly how husbands are asked to love their wives. Encouraged to take the lead when it comes to spiritual devotion and serving and sacrificial love. So, we've made a real quick sprint through quite a bit of the scriptures when it comes to uh, this subject. And you might be sitting here today and be like, well, that seems clear enough, so what's the big deal? Well, there are three particular passages that warrant our more acute attention here as we seek the full truth on this question. They're the ones that we can get snagged on if we don't keep in mind the context of these directives. So, the last thing we'll do before we wrap up is dive into these three particular instructions. Are you still with me? Okay. All right. Very good. First is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in which we read this. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Okay. What's going on here? This chapter is about orderly worship, and several groups receive correction, not, certainly not just women. Paul indicates elsewhere in this same letter that women participated in prayer and prophecy in the church, and all are encouraged to exercise their spiritual gifts. So if that's the case, within this same letter, we can only infer that Paul is addressing a specific situation. Because what, he's, if what, what he says here, if taken to mean anything universal or general, would contradict things he says in the same letter. So, we know that these Corinthians had a knack for being pretty disorderly and chaotic. If you read the whole letter, you can see this is a real problem for them. They're trying to figure some things out. And he does give us some sense of what he's dealing with. When we read the word silent here, for instance, it means to hold one's peace. Uh, and it's used elsewhere in the same letter toward men and women telling them there's a time to keep quiet, to refrain. At this moment, 
He refers to questions women were asking out loud in their gatherings. So picture the church has not been around for 2,000 years. It's only been around for a few years. And this is new to everybody. And, and, and then it's, what's even more new is that women get the chance to be a part, and women are learning, and women are, are participating. And so what was happening, a gather, not unlike this one perhaps, in which people are just right in the middle of it asking questions, and particularly women because women had the, mo the most questions to ask. Not because they're women, but because they'd been denied the ability to be educated. Right? So they had a lot of questions, and things were getting a little bit disorderly and chaotic because of all the questions. There was sadly, uh, because of women's limited opportunity to learn, a lot to ask about. So for some, and even attendance at such an assembly was a new experience, but such disruptive public questioning and interruption would have not only been counterproductive, but was considered a bit improper in Paul's day, in much the same way, if we read in this same letter, it was morally indiscreet for a woman to be in public with her head uncovered. Now, those kinds of instructions tell us something. It's how culture works, right? There are things within that culture that communicated certain things very clearly to anyone who lived in that culture that don't make any sense to us today. No one around here is asking anyone, uh, any woman to cover their head. But that made perfect sense within that culture. We have our own cultural ways to communicate and, 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 and uh ways that we understand each other that makes sense to us but wouldn't make sense to another culture. So there's a context here that can't be ignored. This passage addresses women specifically not because they're women, but because they had a lot of questions, and they had a lot of questions because society had withheld from them an education. So Paul is simply trying to iron out the wrinkles, and there were several of them in addition to this one, that were making their gatherings so chaotic. The women in this church had Christian freedom during worship. It was new and a beautiful and amazing thing. Paul was asking them to be thoughtful in how they exercised it when they gathered together. First passage. Second passage is 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, Paul's writing advice to this young pastor as he pastors the church. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. First thing we should see here are those four, first four words. A woman should learn, is what Paul says. We can't read past this and underestimate the education and empowerment this meant to our sisters in Christ at that time and should continue to always mean. Women were only very rarely afforded education, as we've mentioned, which is precisely why it would be unwise to make them teachers prematurely. When Paul said this, by God's guidance, he was offering women an amazing new opportunity to learn the Scriptures, something that had been completely denied them. Paul did not want them to teach because they didn't yet have enough knowledge or experience. And he has said the same thing to Timothy when it comes to men who lack experience as well. He was telling Timothy to not put anyone, in this case women, but elsewhere, the same principle regarding anyone else, into a position of leadership who was not yet mature in the faith. Now, as we read this passage, in this case, the word quiet or quietness means a description of the life of one who does not meddle with the affairs of others, to lead a quiet life. We read that elsewhere. Paul was seeing that women, due to the conditions we've just discussed, not because of their gender, but because of the way society had treated them and boxed them in, that they were then especially susceptible to false teaching, a significant and rampant danger in the church. 
Plenty of false teachers would come into town and say things like, Jesus isn't the Son of God. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And if, you don't have, uh, if you're lacking in education, you're more susceptible to maybe believing something that's false. And he wants to protect so that good, healthy doctrine can be taught and people can get the right and correct ideas about Jesus. So he's setting some guidelines here that are specific to the time and the place and the situation. Now, one more, a uh, couple more things on this passage. I'm going to geek out here for just a real quick second. Uh, when he says, I do not permit, it's important to understand the verb, form, the verb tense that he chooses to use here. And uh, to summarize, it's called the first person present indicative form. Now, all that really just means he's speaking to a currently ongoing action, not making a universal prohibition. In other words, uh, the most accurate way to translate this would be, I am currently not placing women in teaching positions in the churches. If he wanted to say we should never have women teach in the church, there, could have been a, there would have been a way to say that in, in the Greek, and that would have been super clear. He did not choose those words. He chose these words. I am not, at the moment, currently permitting that because of the situations that we just described. What is he not permitting? He's not permitting women to teach or assume authority. The meaning of that verb, to assume authority, means to take, uh, assume a stance of independent authority. In other words, to get ahead of themselves or to, to, to go, go uh, out of what would be uh, helpful for the whole body. In every documented occurrence of this verb, meaning to assume authority, it, rever- it refers to an unauthorized assumption of authority. This verse does not use the standard Greek word for exercise authority. Why am I saying all that? Because again, there were easily accessed words Paul could have used if he wanted to say women should never exercise authority in any way. There were words available for him to say exactly that super clearly. He did not use those words. He talked about a different thing. And that's the idea of kind of getting ahead of yourself, elbowing your way and assuming authority over someone else. That's not about a certain gender. Anyone could do just that thing. And we would all be a bit miffed if they did, right? This idea that you're somehow powering up and assuming authority over me. He says, no, that's out of line. That's not how we love and live together. So consequently, Paul is not prohibiting women in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was pastoring, like Priscilla, for instance, from having authority. Rather, because of the ongoing crisis of false teaching in Ephesus, especially home of the Greek goddess, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis, he prohibits women from assuming authority or presuming to teach without first learning. This would have made perfect sense to Timothy's ears given the situation of the church, the very young church, at this time in Christian history, very early in the movement that we all are a part of and love. So the church was seeking to wisely undo, this is key, the church was seeking to wisely undo what society had done to women, kept keeping them under and low and in a box. And instead, Christian faith was setting them free and honoring them as equals and letting that uh, flower and bloom and take place. Third passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3 in a parallel one in Titus 1. Paul describes the qualifications of an overseer or an elder or pastor of a local church. Does Paul require that all overseers be men? Well, he starts by saying this. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And in the Greek, as in the English, that word whoever or anyone is a gender-inclusive word. It doesn't mean he or her. It doesn't mean male or female. It's just anyone, whoever. 
Paul makes it clear that anyone in, in his continuing subject uh, by reiterating the same word, anyone, in verse 5. And he does it in Titus as well. So contrary, uh, so that's the first thing to notice, that if he wanted to be gender specific, he had the chance to be, but he, he wasn't. And then as he goes on and begins to describe the qualifications of an elder, every now and then you're going to see a he or a his in some translations here, depending on the, which one you look at. And some people might read that and think, well, he keeps using he and he keeps using him. Doesn't he have men in mind? But what we don't realize is that in the original Greek, there is no he or him. When we translate it from Greek to English, some translators feel like it's more readable to have some pronouns in there. He must be this. He must not be that. But when you actually go back to the original Greek, there is no he and there is no him. It's just a list of qualifications that are not in any way tied to he or her or male or female. He and him are just simply not there in the Greek. Now, when another thing about this passage is when we read here that an overseer must be faithful to his wife, we are reading literally the phrase one woman man. An overseer is to be a one woman man. Well, here we go. Scholars on both sides of this agree that uh, reading, reading this simply means that polygamists or the sexually unfaithful shouldn't be overseers of a local church. Now, some folks would insist on separating and isolating that word man from in one woman man from its context and treating it as a requirement then, oh, see right there, every overseer must be male. Ignoring that this is an idiom, meaning a group of words that taken together convey an idea. An example of an idiom would be hit and run. Uh, hit, we all know that a hit and run is a felony, but we don't think that run is also a felony right? This, lift, this approach would lift a single word and then draw conclusions on that word while ignoring a host of other scriptures, which is what you would have to do to make that argument. Besides, this way of illustration, no one in their right mind would interpret the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, as saying that it's okay if women covet their neighbor's husbands, right? No one would think that, because even though the verse only speaks to men, we understand what it's trying to say. So we're not massaging the meaning here or trying to twist any truth, but simply letting the Bible interpret and illuminate itself. So, from Adam to Eve, to Paul's instructions to the young pastor Timothy, and a lot of stuff in between, we've taken a concise but I hope comprehensive look at what the Bible says uh, on this very vital and important subject. And that we've reached the conclusion, thanks to this very survey of the scriptures, um, that women are equally empowered as men in their call to ministry leadership. Let me close with a quick illustration. Our church was founded in 1866. In 1868, our church built its first building. And it had two separate front doors, one for women and the other for men. Certain beliefs were built right into our architecture, and those beliefs were formed far more by culture than by Scripture. Now, by 1909, in our second structure, perspectives had changed, and two separate main entrances became one. Countless adjustments like that, both large and small, have permeated our 150-plus years, all while we are seeking to be a deeply biblical and God-pleasing church. And it's in that same seeking 
that we reached what we believe was a well-studied and thoroughly prayed-through conclusion that God calls and empowers all disciples, women and men, for ministry, including servant leadership in His church. Restoring life before the fall, honoring His Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, and celebrating our ultimate and amazing oneness in Christ Jesus. Amen? As we take communion today, and as we take it each week, we are celebrating that oneness. Uh, When we come to the table, we are coming as people equally in need of grace. Absolutely on the level ground at the foot of the cross, uh, receiving from Him what we're all hungry for, what we all equally need. And so as we take the bread this morning, Let's just celebrate and remember the fact that whoever we are, we all stand before Him equally loved and equally in need of His grace. Let's take and eat together. And every time we take the cup, we're saying the same thing. That we are receiving that which every human soul thirsts for. Redemption, grace, and love from our Creator. Let's take and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have a, an amazing idea, plan uh, for our redemption, that you are working in, in humanity to bring us back to full union and communion with you. Lord, so help us to see whoever we are, whatever society or sometimes even the church has told us um, is uh, true about us, whatever category that we've been kind of shoved into that maybe we've been made to feel that we're less than or counted out or on that B team. Help us to see, God, that that's not the way you see us, not the way you see things, not the way you do things. That's not who you call us to be. So, Lord, help us to live up to and into that truth. We thank you for loving us the way you do so very much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.